All right, just a little bit of uh, introduction about author and uh, background. You probably got some of this from Keith, I would imagine, last week. So Paul, of course, um, is the author. And so some time has obviously passed uh, since Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, So this, because this is 2 Corinthians. But in that time period, the church, many of the church there had been swayed by false teachers. Uh, Paul, he sarcastically refers to these guys as super apostles. So it's kind of like those super apostles, you know, type, type thing. So throughout the letter, he calls them super apostles. Well, he, when he says that, he's referring to false teachers. And what they had done is they had come in and they stirred up the people against Paul. So they were trying to discredit him and try to uh, undermine his apostolic authority and all these things. And so this is what they were about was, was trying to uh, hurt Paul and the ministry that he had there. Of course, when he hears this, this uh, report of what had happened, it breaks his heart because he loves these people. He cares about these people. I mean, this is a church that he planted and a church that he loved dearly and a church that he spent a lot of time on. Of course, he had a lot of frustrations with these, with these people, if you, especially if you look at 1 Corinthians. Uh, they were, again, they were a worldly people. They were not living according to God's word. And so uh, he had to deal with these people. And so it was a hard thing. It broke his heart because when he left before, hopefully things had been, had been fixed. Hopefully things had been set in order. And they had gone astray again somewhere between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And so in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, uh, we get a glimpse of Paul's heart uh, for the churches that he planted. Uh, this is where he's giving his list of all his sufferings. All the things that he'd been through where he's like, I've been beaten three times and stoned and shipwrecked. And he, he's going through that list. Are you familiar with that list? He's talking about these things. Um, if you're not, you can go to first, or 2 Corinthians 12 and look at that sometime. Um, but we, he's going through this list of sufferings that he had been through. And in verse 28, he says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And so he, go, he went through all this suffering, all these afflictions, all these things that had happened to him. And, of course, he says, and on top of all that, I feel this anxiety, this, this pressure that's upon me uh, daily for all these churches. Why? Because he loved them. He loved the people. And he wanted them to serve the Lord. He wanted them to, uh, to live a life of joy, live a life of peace, live a life of influence for the Lord. And so it hurt, it, 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 it broke his heart. To get this report, he truly loved these people, even though at times they angered him. I mean, there are times you can read he was angry with them um, because of their continual sin, but he deeply cared for these people, anyways, and he loved them enough to call out their sin. So he, talk, he disciplined them. Church, talk about church discipline. Uh, Paul did that. He did that, and he, was, and he was severe with it because it mattered so much. Um, to him so at times they angered him but he loved them enough to call out their sin Uh, so the and and one thing about church discipline and you'll see this tonight is Paul always had a goal there's an end goal in mind with discipline and that was restoration restore being restored back in the fellowship of believers so it wasn't like he was just angry and he and he disciplined out of anger no he had an end goal and this discipline was to bring these people back into fellowship of the church. And so that's a little bit about what was going on. So uh, what we see here is that Paul had got this report that they were back living in sin, and it broke his heart. Second Corinthians, it's interesting, just a little information here, it's actually the fourth letter that Paul sent to the church in Corinth. It was the fourth letter. Uh, of course, in God and his wisdom and his sovereignty, he preserved the two letters that we have while the others were lost. But there were other letters that Paul wrote to them that we just don't have. They're gone. But, of course, God chose these two uh, for us to have. He wrote, uh, Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote 1 Corinthians. And he expected Timothy uh, to visit Corinth and return to him in 1 Corinthians. Uh, go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians. We'll look at it. Look at that passage there. First Corinthians chapter 16. So Paul was in Ephesus. He sent, he's going to send Timothy with the intention that Timothy would come back and report to him 
uh, what is going on. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse, verses 10 and 11. It says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him, in, uh, put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. And so he sends Timothy. He says, I want you to go check on him, uh, and I want you to come back to me. And so he, tell, he tells them that Timothy's on his way. He's coming to you. Uh, receive him. <laughs> treat him. Treat him right. And then and when he comes back, and then allow him to come back uh, to me. And so he's in Ephesus when he wrote 1 Corinthians. A- again, expecting Timothy to go and come back. And Timothy reported back to Paul of the turmoil in the church. And Timothy further reported to Paul that opposition had risen up against him in his absence. And that is where 2 Corinthians uh, comes from, is during this time. Paul made a brief, painful visit. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In response to this report by Timothy, we uh, again, Acts does not report this trip, but you can see in 2 Corinthians that it's clearly uh, that he did make this uh, quick trip. It's a brief, painful trip to Corinth in response to the report. But 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So he, he clearly had gone. So we see that he he did go there, and the first one was a painful experience. If you go to um, chapter 12, chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 14 and 15, it says, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden for I, uh, for I seek... Uh, what is yours but you not what is yours but what is you for children are not obligated to save up for their parents but parents for their children i almost gladly spend my spend and be spent for your souls uh, if you if if i love you more am i to be loved less and he continues to go on but what he's saying he's saying here is i'm getting ready to come here for a third time so he, he's telling them i'm, I'm, I'm going to be coming again and so we see that he had made these these previous uh, another previous trip between First and Second Corinthians, um, and this will be the third. This one would be the third trip that he makes. But this letter goes before him; it gets sent there to the church before him, and you'll see that here in just a little bit as well. We're just going through a little bit of background of what's happening at this point. Upon Paul's return to Ephesus, he pens this this letter to the church. He urges them to discipline the leader of the opposition. Says he urges them, this needs to be dealt with. He urges them to do this, uh, to deal with this. And then we see, um, actually, let's read the, we'll read the scriptures where he does that. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be flipping around a little bit tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll read the first 11 verses. It says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that uh, when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I sure felt, all of you, that my joy would be uh, the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of love, out out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone needs... If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Uh, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you would rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or that he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. So he's talking about what he wants him to do with this offender uh, against him, this opposition. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for the sake of the, uh, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so he's telling them, we want, I want you to deal, this person has caused pain. 
And we want, I want you to deal with this, this leader, this opposition. I want you to deal with him with the purpose of bringing him back into fellowship. Not that we're getting rid of them forever, even if it means casting somebody out for a little while or something like that. He says, I want him back in the fellowship. And then verse 7, or chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 8. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, uh, though only for a little while. So he knew that this was a letter of instruction, of warning, of rebuke. And he says, it may have made you grieve for a little while, and I don't regret that. It's for your good. This is for your good. And so this is, uh, this is why he wrote this. He urging them to discipline the leader of the opposition. Titus is the one who carried this letter for Paul to the church. Uh, the response to this letter was great relief to Paul when he heard that the majority of the Corinthians had repented. So that was great news when Titus comes back and says the majority of them have repented, but there was still a small group, but it was a minority uh, opposition that still persisted, uh, led evidently by a group of Judaizers who were intent on discrediting Paul, as I would mentioned earlier. That was what they were about, was discrediting Paul. They questioned his apostleship, his teaching, his motives, he's coming to take up an offering, we'll, we'll talk about here in a little bit, uh, saying, what are his, what's his motivation? And they begin to question him and begin to infiltrate and get the people questioning Paul's authority and Paul's leadership. And so that's what, they were intent, that's what their intent was. But Titus's report was a good one, that a majority of the people had repented. A majority of the people there had repented, and therefore, he could go to them here pretty soon at that point. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in AD 56. Uh, he sent it to the church with Titus and another brother. That's according to chapter 8, verses 16 through 24. And this is prior to his third trip there. And so he writes this letter, and it includes three major sections. Um, chapters 1 through 7 is Paul's explanation of his ministry. It's where he's explaining everything about it. Also, chapters 8 and 9, we see Paul's collection for the Jerusalem saints, and we'll look at that in depth here in a minute. And then Paul's vindication of his apostleship, and that's chapters 10 through 13. I believe that that breakout is on the back of your handout, too. I think it is, uh, those three areas. So that's a little bit of introduction, author, background, what's going on. Um, I want to do a quick survey of 2 Corinthians of those three sections, and then there's going to be some specific passages we'll go through to end. Uh, because there's so much, there's so much good stuff in 2 Corinthians, and we can't possibly cover it all. Um, I'd encourage you to go read it. It's, it's 13 chapters, but the chapters are not very long. Uh, you could read it really quick. Uh, there's so much good stuff in there, practically, theologically. There's, there's just good stuff. And so we can't possibly do it all, so we're just going to hit a few highlights uh, here after we do this quick survey. So the first section we talked about that I mentioned is Paul's explanation of his ministry in chapters 1 through 7. Paul explains why he delayed his visit to Corinth. Uh, if you look in chapter 1, we're not going to read it right now, but if you look at chapter 1, he, he explains why he can't come right now. Um, he said he waited long enough for them to repent. He wanted to give time for that and to restore the offender to fellowship. Ultimately, that was the goal, was that they would repent and this offender uh, would be broken over his sin and would be restored into the fellowship. Um, he then spends considerable uh, amount of time defending his ministry in terms of his message, circumstances, motives, and conduct. And that's chapter 2, verse 14, through uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, he admonishes believers to separate themselves from the world, worldly defilement. Uh, if you look, he talks about uh, in chapter, um, let's see, I think it's chapter 7. It's 6 or 7. Um, maybe it's 7. But he's talking about do not be yoked together with unbeliever with an unbeliever. And a lot of times this is used in marriage, and yes, that does apply. A believer and non-believer aren't, shouldn't get married. Um, but he's also just talking about just in life. Just in life, is that there's there's not that common bond. They're going in different directions, and and he warns them about being separate, that we are to be holy, we are called out, we're to be consecrated to God for His purposes. And so 
<clears throat> he speaks to the believers about separating themselves from worldly defilement, which, of course, 1 Corinthians deals with a bunch. He says you need to be separate. You need to be different. And then he expresses his comfort at, at Titus's news of their, at their change of heart uh, in chapter 7. <clears throat> so Titus brought him a good report. Uh, the second section here in the survey is Paul's collection for the saints, and that's in chapters 8 and 9. And this is the longest discussion of the principles and practice of giving in the New Testament. We'll look at that in detail here in just a minute. Uh, that's chapters 8 and chapters 9, and then chapters 10 and through 13 is Paul's vindication of his apostleship. His vindication of his apostleship. In chapter 10, Paul defends his ministry. Uh, chapter, and then uh, he's, what we see here in chapters 10 through 13, <clears throat> excuse me, is that Paul was forced by these false teachers, the claims that they made about him. So he was forced, in a sense, to talk about uh, his credentials. Kind of, bo- in a sense, boast about his credentials, about his knowledge, his integrity, his, his accomplishments, his sufferings, uh, his visions, and his miracles. And that's in chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, 13. But he has to, because of these claims they made about him, and because they had been effective in doing so, he had to kind of lay out his credentials uh, of, his, of being an apostle and having that authority that God had given him. He's comparing himself with the false teachers. And, of course, there really is, there is no comparison between Paul and them. Of course, we understand that Paul loved these people. These super apostles, these false teachers, they did not love the people. Who did they care about? Themselves. That's all they cared about was themselves. And so Paul truly loved the people. These super apostles, uh, they were in it only for selfish gain. Whether it be maybe financial gain, maybe it was their reputation, maybe they liked being the one that people looked to for, uh, for guidance. Um, jealousy, they were jealous of, of Paul and the success that he had had uh, in that church. And if you look at chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> Verses 13 through 15. It says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, so he's saying these false, these super apostles, these false teachers, say they are servants of Satan himself. It says, So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, it says their end will correspond with their deeds. And so they may have looked the part. They may have sounded the part. Uh, but it says just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, these people had disguised themselves. They disguised themselves. And they were not in it because they cared about the people. They were not in it because they loved the Lord. They were not in it for the, any of those reasons. They are in it solely for themselves. Solely for themselves. And so Paul, he's having to kind of undo some of those things and, and help the people to see that um, in them. Paul pleaded with the church to deal with sin so that when he came, he wouldn't have to deal so severely with them. He's like, I don't want to, when I come, I don't want to have to be heavy handed. So I, I would like to, I'd like to enjoy our fellowship. I'd like to be able to teach and, and admonish and those kind of things. But if there's sin that you don't deal with, he said, I will come and I will be severe. So he warned them. Take care of it. Take care of the sin before I come. And so he urged them. He pled with them to do this. And then in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 11. These are the final words that Paul, what he leaves them with. Verse 11 of chapter 13. It says, finally, brothers, rejoice. He says, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of peace and, uh, and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with you all. So what, did he, what were his final words? He says, first of all, I want you to rejoice. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Be people who rejoice, and we are to be people who rejoice. It says, aim for restoration. It says, this is the goal. 
is if there's a brother or sister who, who goes off the path, um, and maybe there needs to be discipline, maybe there needs to be encouragement, whatever there needs to be, it says whatever we do, the goal and the aim needs to be restoration, that we bring, that they come back. Thank you, that. Um, the goal would be that they come back. So he says, rejoice, aim for restoration, uh, comfort one another. So uh, Paul deals a lot with affliction in Second Corinthians. He says we need to comfort one another. And he says, agree with one another and live at peace. So what he's talking about here, these super apostles, what were they about? Division, dividing those, those who are for Paul and those who are not. Does this sound familiar in our day and age? Division. This is what Satan wants to do. He wants to divide. He wants to divide you in your marriage. He wants to divide you. He wants to divide the church. He wants to, he, he is a divider. And these super apostles were about dividing. What was Paul about? Unity. Unity. One body. Loving one another. Caring about one another. Seeking to restore one another. Living at peace. Comforting each other. And hopefully you can see the difference between these super apostles who were, mess- who were agents, servants of Satan, is what, he, is what uh, Paul calls them. And then Paul, on the other hand, promoting unity. Unity in the body. And that's so important is that we're unified, that our church is unified. Not only here, but we're unified also with our brothers and sisters um, around the world as well. And so this is what Paul was promoting. <clears throat> so that was a really, really quick rundown of the book. That was chapter 1 through chapter 13. Uh, I want to spend the rest of the time tonight highlighting a couple of specific passages. So we're going to go, we'll just start, we'll start in the beginning. is chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And again, we can't talk about everything, but there's just a few that I thought would be really good just to go through. Really good to go through. And we're moving at record pace. I guess I can't say that yet, but we're, we're trying to, not trying to be here till 8. But uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with a comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is, for our, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Uh, our hope is that our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So we saw a lot of words. saw affliction a lot. We saw suffer a lot. And we saw comfort a lot in these, in these just four verses here, five verses here. In Paul's afflictions, what does he start? He extols the name of God. He praises the name of God. Uh, Paul is a guy who is very well acquainted with affliction. Very well acquainted. What does he say? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of these afflictions, Paul says this. Paul is a man of many afflictions. Let's look in chapter 4 at how he viewed them. How did he view these afflictions that came his way? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Did I write down the wrong verses? I did. Uh, cha- verse 16. <clears throat> he says... So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight, weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, and the things that are unseen are eternal. So this is how Paul viewed this affliction. Does, did he enjoy it? No. Was, it, was he happy about it? No. He, nobody likes affliction. Nobody likes... And Paul, of all people, he went through tremendous affliction and tremendous uh, hardship for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. 
And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can he say that? He says, we do not lose heart. He says, our outer self, and we're, it says we're wasting away. And ultimately, we are. I mean, at some point, our bodies are going to wear out. At some point, they're going to die. We are wasting away. Our bodies, in, 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 uh, in this time, in that time, those times of affliction, you, you may physically, you're, you're going to struggle as well. I mean, we, we understand that our bodies are temporary. It says we're, our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. That the, the Spirit of God renews us daily, even though our body outwardly is wasting away. It says we are renewed daily. Uh, our inner man is, is renewed. And then he says, this light momentary affliction. <laughs> like what Paul's, you know, he's been stoned. He's been beaten 30, uh, with 39 lashes three times. He's been shipwrecked, been left for dead. He's been hated. He's, he's, he's been... Uh, he knows what it was like to have a lot, plenty. He knew what it was like to have nothing, to be uh, hungry. I mean, Paul had been through a lot of stuff, and eventually he was going to be beheaded um, for, for, the, for Christ. So ultimately, that's what was going to be his end. And he says, these are light and momentary afflictions. How can he say that? He says, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Say, the stuff that happens in this life, whether it be good or bad, doesn't compare to what we're going to, ex- what we're going to experience someday. It says the glory uh, that, that is, is waiting for us in eternity. And he says that's where we look. He says as we look not to the things that are seen, we're not looking to the world uh, to be happy. We're not looking to the world to satisfy us in any kind of way. He says we're not, we don't look at those things. We look upward. We look to, to Christ. We, we keep our eyes focused on him, understanding that all the stuff that happens in this life will not compare to what we're going to experience. Whether it be good or bad, he's talking about affliction here uh, in this moment. So this is how Paul viewed affliction. And so back in chapter 1, when he's talking about this, this section here of, of being uh, comforted and, and comforting one another, we see a few things about God. We see God, he's, he, he's talking about God the Father. So he's talking about our Heavenly Father. It says he, he calls him the Father of mercies, is that he is merciful to us. He is gracious to us. He says he is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all afflictions. Comfort is the overall disposition that comes from resting in God's sovereign and living rule as manifested in Christ. Lordship. And so the saying is that we can rest in the comfort of God, understanding and trusting his plan. That's maybe another way to say that. It's trusting the plan of God. Um, he said we can rest, we can have comfort, even in those times of affliction when we don't really understand uh, what's happening. But he says God comforts us in our afflictions. That we may, and he also he says he does this so that we may comfort others in theirs. So when you've gone through something and God comforts you, when you come across somebody who's going through something that you went through, says you get to comfort them the way that God comforted you. And that is one, that's one thing that's great about the church. It's that we care about one another. We pray for one another. We can love one another. When somebody's suffering or somebody's struggling, we can comfort them. Because there's so many people uh, in this church alone who have probably been through what, what you've been through. And we are to comfort one another. And he says, God comforts us. And then with that same comfort that we've experienced from him, we can comfort others. See what a great thing that is. He says, this is what I want for you. Again, Paul's about unity. Paul's about restoration. He's about these things. And so this is, that, that, that makes sense with why he would, he would talk about these things. So go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Move on to this next passage here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse the, uh, 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> it says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, 
but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what we see here in this passage is that if you know Christ, it's only because the Spirit of God revealed him to you. So salvation is not of yourself, it's not of your good works, it's not of anything that you did to earn it. It is an act of, of God's grace. It's an act of his grace. Act of, it's an act of God. It's all of God. It's not of you at all. Uh, it is, it, he revealed him to you, and he showed you, and the, the veil was taken away, and now you could understand the gospel and have the ability to respond to it. See, we don't have the ability to respond to it because, as Ephesians says, we're dead spiritually. And so we've all seen, uh, we've all seen dead people before. And they have no ability to respond. Right? They have no ability to respond. He says, that was you spiritually. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were born dead in our sin with no ability to respond to God. No ability to recognize him. No ability to respond to him. <clears throat> and what this passage here is, is talking about is that, is that God says he's shown his light into your heart and you were able to understand it. And at one point in your life, uh, when you came to know Christ for that first time ever, you were able to understand. You may have, it may have been something you read all your life. It may have been something you'd heard before, but it just didn't, it didn't make sense. And then one day, when the Spirit of God illuminated your heart, you were able to understand. It says, this is how salvation works. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in you. If you know Christ, it's because the Spirit of God revealed him to you. And then the world acts as it does because they don't know Christ. They're veiled. They have no ability to do right. They have no ability to, to do good. And so when we look around our, our nation and our in our world and we complain and we grumble about the way the world is and the way people are, well, they're just living out their nature. They're dead. They're dead spiritually. They don't know the Lord. Their eyes are veiled. They can't understand this. And so they're living out their nature. And so when we look at some guy who's doing bad stuff and we're going, what's wrong with him? Well, we know what's wrong with him. He doesn't know the Lord. That's what's wrong with him. And so... We need to see the world, <clears throat> excuse me, with that, through that lens, is there's people who know the Lord, and there's people who don't. And so when we see people uh, who are living a certain way, or we see things that happen around the world that are, that are terrible things that are happening, uh, these are people who don't know the Lord. And that's why they're doing these things. They don't understand. They have no ability to do right. They have no ability to respond to God because their eyes have been veiled. So if you know Christ, what he's, Paul is saying here, it's because the Spirit of God revealed him to you. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. You weren't able to understand on your own. It took the Holy Spirit. It took the Holy Spirit to work. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Moving on. Verse 17. Verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us uh, to us the message of reconciliation. It says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God uh, for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, for the believer, this is great news. It says, if you were in Christ, you were a new creation. 
you are no longer the old person. Now, the old man's still kind of there, and we, and we battle with the, the old nature and the sin nature. It's, we still have to war with that, but you've been given a new heart. You are a new creation. In verse 17 again, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, Paul also speaks about oftentimes in other, other places that we need to kill the flesh, that we daily die to self. Uh, but before we knew Christ, we didn't even know we needed to do that. We had no ability to do that. But now, we have, because of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we at least have the ability to do that. You are a new creation. You are no longer the same. You're not that old person. God has changed you. You've been changed at your core. You've been changed. And you and I, each of us, have been given, we've been reconciled to God, and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You've been reconciled. You've been made right with God. And now you've been given the ministry to be, you have the ministry of reconciliation to the world. Is that, he says, I implore you on, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message. That's our message. Be reconciled, be made right with God. And that's the message that we take to the world. That's the message that uh, we proclaim. This is the message that we live as well. Oftentimes you've probably heard the statement, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Well, I disagree with that, <laughs> partly. Uh, I understand what, the, what they're getting at, but you could, live a, you could live a godly life and never say anything, and somebody will die and go to hell just thinking that you were a good person. It is the word of God that brings faith. And so I don't agree with that statement because it is our words, it's what we say, it's the message we bring, but it's also we have to live it. That we live it. And so this is what he's saying. You've been given a ministry. It's not just a pastor's job or, or a, a counselor's job or whatever. No, it says you. You've been given a job. You've been given a mission. And this mission, this ministry of reconciliation. And if you, are a, if you have been made new and you're a, you belong to Christ, you have this ministry of reconciliation. And so this is what we are to do is to, is to recognize that. He says in verse 21, for, this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, we are not righteous, but Jesus was. And our sin was placed upon him. He took our sin, and we, he gave us his righteousness. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what he did. And so this is the message, again, to the world, is you can be reconciled. You can receive the righteousness. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can receive the righteousness of God. And then we go to chapter eight and nine, chapters 8 and 9. We're going to talk about giving here. Talk about giving. Because Paul, he talks about it for two chapters. And so we're going to read chapter 8 first. And then we'll read chapter 9. Not the whole chapter. We'll read 15 verses in each. But as we're reading this, think about these principles of giving and generosity. These principles here. Uh, chapter 8. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their, abu- their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty had overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Which I'm just stop there for a second. It says they had, they were, uh, it says that they, they, were, they were under affliction. It says they're abundant, they had an abundance of joy, but a lack of material wealth. They had abundant joy, um, and so they. But they, it says they were. It doesn't say just like they're a little poor. It says they're extreme poverty, extreme poverty. So keep that in mind as we talk about these things. For they gave according to their means. This is verse three. As I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not that we expected, not as we expected. But they, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he had start, uh, that he ha- as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in love for you, 
See that you excel in this act of grace also. What act of grace is he talking about? Giving. This is an act of grace. Uh, Verse 8. So I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that you... That you love also is that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Christ, that though he was rich, yet he he for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty might be rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago not only uh, not only do you I'm sorry not not only uh, to do this this work, but also to desire to do it. So not only do they were they going to do it? They said they had a desire to. Verse 11. Now, uh, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others be eased and burdened, uh, and you burdened, but as a, that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, uh, so their abundance may supply your need, and there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. So he's talking here about the Macedonians. The Macedonians says they had this great desire to, to take part. Uh, the, the, the saints in Jerusalem were struggling, and they were taking up relief to help them out. And the Macedonians, they, had no, they didn't have a whole lot of anything. But what did they have? Great joy, great desire to be a part. It says they gave uh, according to their means. It says even above their means. Above their means. Um, and then he, be, he begins to talk about them, saying they had this desire, this readiness to do it. They really, they wanted to help. But where, where did this all start? And this is... One of those things. We need to remember that Paul was collecting this offering to help struggling Jews. But it started, first of all, with them giving themselves to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord. This, that's the first principle. Uh, keep this in mind is what a testimony of God's grace when we see these Gentiles loving their Jewish brothers. They were taking up this collection, this offering. Paul was going around going to be collecting this offering and taking it to Jerusalem as a to relieve, to help the saints there. And uh, what, a, what a testimony of God's grace, them loving their brothers. The Gentiles and Jews, before, prior to, prior to uh, Christ tearing down the wall, they hated, one, they hated one another. There's a hatred of Jews and Gentiles. Well, now these Gentiles, because of what God had done in them, now they say, we have this desire, this joy, and yes, we don't have much, but we're going to give according to our means, or yes, even above our means, because we want to have a part in this. This is what he's talking about. They were able to do that because this first principle, the Macedonians says, gave themselves first to the Lord. This allowed them to excel in this act of grace, even though they were impoverished. They excelled. And so this is what he's talking about here in verse 12. Paul says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And so he says it's, not, it's, according, it's based on what one has. It's not an amount. It's not a, necessarily a percentage. Or it's, not, it's, it's based on, on, on what one has, not what they don't have. So they gave themselves first to the Lord. Chapter 9. Chapter 9, and we're going to get a couple more principles here in chapter 9. <clears throat> Verse 1. Now it's superfluous for me to write to you the ministry of the, for, uh, for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast, uh, boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that in Caia uh, that uh, has been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred, stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, uh, so that you may be ready, as I, said, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come, come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing to, of you uh, for being, uh, being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge, urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance the gift that you promised 
so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So it's one of those things where Paul said, you've kind of promised you're going to do these things, and we've been telling others that you're going to do these things. Um, come through. You kind of made this vow. You made this commitment. You made this promise. Uh, we're needing you to come through. And so we're, we're, gonna, we're coming through, and we expect it to, to be there pretty much. Verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he who distributed freely, he has given to the poor, the righteous, righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which though uh, through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many, thing, many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ, that the generosity your contribution for them and all others, while they long for you and pray for you, uh, because the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this, his inexpressible gift. I got distracted there for a minute. A bug landed on my page. I'm not sure where they are. They're coming out of me or they're flying around, but they keep landing up here. But um, some more principles of, of giving and generosity. So principle one, Macedonians gave themselves first to the Lord. Second principle we see is in chapter nine. Uh, generosity comes from a willing heart. From a willing heart in response to God's grace in your life is that you recognize that God is, he is, he is, he is uh, giving you grace, and you've experienced that grace in your life. And so you have a willing heart to give. A willing heart to give. The third principle we see, Paul gives the sowing and reaping principle, <clears throat> which is a principle in a lot of areas of life, but he's speaking here. Uh, but what he says is that, uh, what we understand is that God does not command Christians to give a certain amount, but he provides opportunities to give generously. And so when, there's an op- when opportunities arise is that we are to be people uh, who are generous. And so uh, he, these op- he provides these opportunities. Things come up. And you have the ability, because the grace of God in your life, you have the ability to meet that need. And so we meet the need. Uh, we have missionaries. We have things going on all over the world and around here. Uh, there's needs. And you can meet those needs if God lays that on your heart. And that's what he's talking about here is a willing, a willing heart in response to God's grace in your life. The sowing and reaping. Uh, God does not command Christians, like I said, to give a certain amount. But he provides those opportunities. And those who, who do give generously will also reap bountifully in terms of bearing fruit for God's kingdom in other ways as well. There, there's thought out there is that if I give, I'm going to get it all back plus some. You probably heard that, right? That whole idea of, I'm going to give. Well, and by the way, if you give expecting to get more in return, is that the right heart attitude? No. No. We open our hand and we give. And then, but those who, who do, who sow bountifully, he says, reap bountifully. And really what we're, he's talking about here is not necessarily more money. It could be more money. It could be that he gives you more. God can do that, and he does do that. Uh, but ultimately... We reap bountifully in terms of bearing fruit for God's kingdom. That is, that is eternal stuff. Bearing fruit for God's kingdom is eternal reward. And so keep that in mind. As if so, we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully. Again, you didn't hear, hear me say that you give and you're going to become rich. That's not, the Bible didn't teach that. It doesn't teach that. Um, there are people out there who do teach that, but the Bible doesn't. Fourth principle is God loves a cheerful giver. And being cheerful when you give expresses contentment in God's gracious giving to you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not greedy. I'm not trying to get, continually trying to get more. But I'm content with what God's given me. He's, had, he's been gracious to me, and so a need arises. I meet that need. These Macedonians in their poverty, they, they were content with what they had. 
And so it may have been, I don't know, maybe they gave up. And today's 50 cents, according to today's terms. But you know what? It was from their heart. It was from a willing heart. Uh, it was, they understood the grace of God in their life. Uh, and they were cheerful. They desired to do it. It says God loves that. God loves a cheerful giver. The fifth principle is for the believer to recognize that everything they have comes from God. And that would be a good place for many people to start is saying, this is not mine it's God's, whether it be uh, whatever it is. Everything we have is a gift from God, and we have to recognize this and be content with what we have. And God, it, it is from him. We recognize that, and it's a lot easier to give, a, give something that we were given, right, if we recognize that. Give away, some, give away what God has given us, and we recognize that. So God loves a cheerful giver. And believers need to recognize that everything they have come from God. Again, the Macedonians were a great example of this. They didn't have much. They didn't have much. But they gave all they could. And then the last principle here. You see that God is a giver. He gave us the greatest gift ever. He gave us Jesus Christ. That God is a generous God. He's a gracious God. He's a giver. And we want to become like our Heavenly Father. We want to be that God's goal, God's goal for us is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ pretty much by any means necessary. If you read Romans chapter 8, it says, this is, my, this is our goal, my goal for you, is that you be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And, and, and by, by any means necessary. This is all in the context of all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to purpose. Uh, and then it goes on to say that, uh, and my goal for you is that you'd be conformed to the image of my son. This is how those verses are connected. Um, God is a giver. And we need to be conformed to the image of his son and be generous people. That doesn't mean, I mean, that's not what we're, uh, this could mean different things for different people, but uh, the principles are there. And Paul takes two chapters to deal with that. Two chapters he deals with it. But just to wrap this up, in all things... Paul desired to, to bring honor and glory to God. He loved these people dearly. It's very evident. Um, of course, it broke his heart to hear what had been going on there. Um, he is teaching, encouraging, rebuking these believers out of a love for God and a love for them. And see, real leadership is going to love the people. He loved the people. These super apostles, they didn't love the people. They didn't care about the people. They're just worried about discrediting Paul and, and, and dividing. Paul loved the people. Um, and, he, and he loved God. He loved these people. He presents Christ in this book as the believer's comfort in chapter 1. That he is the believer's triumph in chapter 2. That he is their Lord in chapter 4. That he is the light in chapter, in chapter, uh, that's, that's chapter 4 as well. That he showed a, he, his light shone into our hearts and revealed him to us. He is judge. He is the believer's judge in chapter 5. He is their reconciliation or being made right with God in chapter 5. He is their substitute in chapter 5. He took our place. He, he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He is the believer's gift. Jesus Christ himself is the gift. He is the owner of all owner of us and he is their power this is what paul is talking about here he's dealing with knuckleheads people who are hard-headed stubborn can't quite get it right but paul loves them anyways and he teaches them and he encourages them he prays for them and see he he wants and he seek he's seeking unity and i would say that's what we need to be seeking this one thing we can learn from this is that we need to be a unified people. There's so much division in our culture and in our world. Everybody's trying to uh, divide people into different groups, and, and this group is no longer is it this group and this group are different, but they can still like have a civil conversation. It's like, no, we're enemies now. That's, the church isn't to be like that, and thank God ours is not. Praise God that ours is not, that we are... We are a unified church, but there's so many that are not. And Satan wants, to, we have to be careful because he wants to get in. He wants to divide. He wants to divide your marriage. He wants to divide the church. Uh, 
Two things that are very important to the heart of God. And Paul saw this happen. They were dividing. These false apostles, these super apostles were getting in and dividing. And are discrediting. Um, they're causing problems. And so uh, we pray that God would continue to help us be unified. To care about one another. To pray for one another. Uh, there's so much. There's so many things. and so many things we could take from this, chat, this book. We don't have time to do it all. This would be something you could take multiple weeks and go through the whole thing and to be great but we don't have that time on a Wednesday night but uh that second Corinthians is a great book so many good things and I would encourage you to go and read it and uh and you'll be you'll be uh, encouraged by it let's pray and then uh well and I'm gonna let me say before I pray uh, we have one of our one of our missionaries um the Honduras and uh he's had COVID really bad, and he's he's not getting better. Let's put it that way. It's not looking like he may. He, good chance he's not going to make it. It's one of the missionaries we support in Honduras. His name is Josh Taylor, and so I didn't, I'm ask you all to pray for him as you go when you go home and, and just as you're thinking about him. I've been able to see what's happening every day on Facebook, and they're at the point now where they're having conversations with the doctor about do we just make him comfortable? I mean, they're at that point, and so. Um, be in prayer for Josh Taylor, his wife. They have teenage kids, three three kids, and you know it's, it's his family. Um, then you also think about the church in Honduras; these people that they love to minister to. Um, it's be hard for them too. So just a lot of be pray for prayer for them. Pray that you know that God will work a miracle. He's still here. He's still here, and so and God can do anything. And so pray for that. Pray for his wife and their kids. But I'm going to pray for him tonight as well. Uh, we have a lot of our missionaries, they've, they're, they're going through stuff as well. So keep them in mind. Uh, think about what's going on uh, in the Middle East and these kind of things. Um, it's, it's bad. There's a lot of bad just stuff out there. And there's a lot of believers our brother, who are our brothers and sisters who are suffering. And we need to remember them and pray for them. And so I'm going to pray for them tonight as well as when I close and then I have a couple announcements we'll be done. God, we love you. We thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your word. Lord, as Paul dealt with, with affliction and, and his view of it, um, Lord, he, he understood what it was like to be brokenhearted over people, who, over sin, and uh, um, you know this divided church, and, and he thought that they would be unified. Thank you for your word and for what we can learn from it. There's so much um, from... Uh, understanding that it was all work of God, the whole reason that we that we were able to know you. God, that you are our comforter uh, in times of affliction, uh, that we can comfort, we are to comfort one another, we are to be unified with one another, uh, that we, I pray that we'd be generous, that when opportunities arise and we have the ability to meet those needs, needs that we would do so. Uh, Lord, there's, again, there's just so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, teaching us and speaking to us through it. And Lord, I do ask for our missionaries um, around the world, our brother and our brothers and sisters that we don't know. So much suffering going on around the world, um, particularly suffering for, for knowing you. And so, God, we ask that you would give them boldness, give them strength in those moments that you would help them not to shrink back, but to, stay, to stand firm, stand firm for you. Uh, we know that in persecution, times of persecution, the gospel does advance. So we pray that you could, your gospel will continue to move forward uh, throughout the world. And then specifically, we pray for our missionary, Josh Taylor. Um, God, our heart breaks for, for him and for his family and uh, what they're going through. And uh, Lord, we, we just ask that you would be with him. Uh, we ask that you might heal him. Uh, God, that you would work a miracle and that you bring healing there. Uh, and then we do ask that you would also be with his family, as this has been a very, very difficult time for them. And uh, his church, their friends in Honduras, God, there's just a lot of people, a lot of people who love them, a lot of people who care about them. Uh, we ask that you'd be with them, and we, we care about them as well. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, work in that situation and that, God, you might bring healing there uh, when, humanly speaking, it doesn't really look likely. But that doesn't mean anything to you. So we ask God that you would do that. I ask that you would help us as we as we go our uh, throughout the rest of this week in our separate ways. Help us to bring honor and glory to you. That we'd be as we leave here, we realize 
that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. What great news that is to the world, to this world of chaos and fear and, and all the things that are going on. The message of reconciliation. You can be made right with your creator. Uh, what a great message that is. I pray that you would help us to keep, take that. Uh, when we go, we go out of this place, that we would bring that message with us because we've been given that, that mission. Again, Lord, I, th- I thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. I ask that you be with our services on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.